You are listening to Mountain Bike Radio. Hello, Mountain Bike Radio listeners. This is Ben, and I am really excited for this interview with Travis Brown. But first, I wanted to cut in just to remind you, if you enjoy what you're listening to and you want to hear more of Mountain Bike Radio, be sure to head over to mountainbikeradio.com slash support MBR. A couple different ways you can become a member, and there's information right there on how to become a member. You can do this for as, it, no frills, no messing around for as little as a dollar a month. You set it, and it does it each month, and you can get the warm fuzzies knowing that you're supporting Mountain Bike Radio and don't have to mess around. Uh, so head over there, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and if you have any questions, for any of the shows, any ideas, uh, critiques, constructive criticism, feel free to send me an email at ben at mountainbikeradio.com. So enjoy this interview. I hope you like it as much. I'm pretty sure you're going to like it as much as I liked actually conducting the interview. So thanks for listening. And until next time, here's Travis Brown. I am here with Travis Brown. He is the... He is a member of the 2000, was it 2000 Sydney Summer Olympic mountain bike team. He was the 1999 Norba National XC winner. He is a mountain bike hall of famer. Uh, and he has endless amount of accolades, experiences, things he's done. But most importantly of all of them, he lived in my hometown for about a year. Isn't that right, Travis? <laughs> I did. We talked about this before the interview. Yep. So uh, it turns out that uh, we both spent some time in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. Travis uh, spent about, what, about a year there? Yeah, almost a year. My my wife is from Wisconsin, so. There you go. And for anybody that's local to that area and knows Fowler Lake, that's where he lived. I find this pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to to get on and just chat with me about everything. Well, it's uh, talking about bikes is a pretty easy thing. Yeah. I don't mind it a bit. And it seems like you have plenty of stories and experiences that you could probably talk all night. Um, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> That's good. I always I, say like it's great. I, I get some guests that are nervous about uh, going down – rabbit holes on certain topics and i always say that's like that's perfect that's what i want yeah we're good no i i uh i feel fortunate to have had as long a career in the bike industry you know both in product development and racing as i have because i'm i'm as compulsed by bikes as as the next bike geek so yeah that's that's perfect you are in the right spot And, (laughs) and we'll get to all this stuff we'll get to what you are doing the product development uh, side of things. Uh, talk a little bit about, or maybe a lot about, the Sustainable Trails Coalition and the IMBA situation, since you are pretty involved in a lot of this stuff, and you know some people that are close to you that are involved in this stuff. And uh, basically, your livelihood, I mean, depends on trail. So we'll get we'll get to that. We'll talk about uh, a lot of things. So let's start from the beginning. I want to. First of all, we were talking about this again, listeners, beforehand, and uh, I put it out to some of the mountain bike radio or to the mountain bike radio members. And uh, if you had any questions, let me know. I will ask them. 
And uh, I had two people contact me and say that they didn't know who Travis Brown was. And my first thought is, okay, to check who it was and to see their age. And they were both older because if we ask a you know 20-year-old, they might not know. And uh, so I, I was a little surprised, but then at the same time, I, I got to thinking, like, you're pretty generally keep a pretty low key and uh, you're not like, look at me, look at me. And uh, I want to know where that all started. Like talk about, let's take us back to when you were, you know, back in late eighties, was it 90? You, you kind of kicked it off uh, right. your pro career. Take us back to those days and what it was like and how you got started doing all that. Well, um, I found mountain biking. Well, I grew up in Durango and, um, you know, in junior high and high school, I, I played ball sports in junior high and ran track and cross country and kind of found, uh, you know, my, my talent more as an endurance athlete. And, um, so ran and cross country skied and had a lot of friends, you know, it being kind of a, a center for mountain biking at that point that mountain biked and mountain bike raced. And I would ride with them quite a bit, but at the end of high school and through college, uh, Nordic ski racing was my priority and I skied for the university of Colorado, um, for four years. And it was during that time that I kept riding more and more. I actually had a Nordic coach who had been a road pro and, um, he had us do more and more of our dryland training on bikes. And so this was, I was at the university of Colorado from, um, 88 until 93. And, um, I think in 89, I did my first mountain bike race just as something to do in the summer to stay fit. And that went pretty well. And then 89, I moved up at this point, the categorizations were beginner sport expert pro. And so I did a couple races in the sport category and then moved up to expert and in, uh, I'm going to cut you off right there. What sure. was your first, what was the first race? The very first mountain bike race I did was the iron horse bicycle classic. Okay. And I believe that was in 1989. Okay. And, uh, I did a couple other, um, sport class races that yeah. year. And I just wanted my- to get the first race Travis Brown ever did on, yeah. on audio, <laughs> which is yeah, appropriate, you know, for someone from Durango, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then I raced a full season as an expert in 1990. And at that point, the uh, a series that was almost as big as the Narva series was the Corpse series, which was the Colorado Point series. And there were Europeans that came to that. It was kind of a big deal. So I did that Colorado Point series and won that as an expert. And then um, the it national just, championships so, were. And that was in 1990 you won it as an expert? Yeah. So you started in 89, your first race and won that as an expert in 90. Yeah. I would say all that base of cross country skiing did you well. Well, and I think those, if there's any two sports that cross over, well, it's mountain biking and Nordic skiing. Um, so then I won the expert national championships in mammoth that year and then went back in the fall to start training with the ski team and decided that since the first official world championships were in Durango that I should move up and do the qualifying race and try to do the pro race. And so I did that. I had to come back from Boulder to Durango and do the qualifying race and made it into the final and then had, you know, one of those fantastic days and surprised myself and ended up 10th 
in that world championships. And that was kind of the turning point from skiing. <laughs> the writing was on the wall that, that I had, you know, better opportunities to race mountain bikes than skiing. So I retired from ski racing pretty much as soon as my, I finished my four year eligibility at CU and, okay. um, turned pro in 91 and for Manitou mountain bikes, which was a Colorado company. And, got to travel with Doug Bradbury, the founder and builder and fabricator of that brand for two years. And then in 1993, um, I started my relationship with Trek and I've been with that company since when you first started, uh, when you hit the point where you realized, okay, I'm going to skiing's done. I'm going to race at that point in time back. Cause that was a little bit before my time. I always tell people my history of mountain biking is about 10 years. So anything before that, I don't, re- I remember watching Julie Furtado on, uh, like Saturdays on TV. Like yeah. that's where I first learned about it. And, but that was, um, at that point in time, was it something where you you looked at it and you're like, man, I can actually make something like money wise or what was, what was the atmosphere like? Uh, well, country? it was, it was a brand new sport that was booming and there was kind of a, a, a land grab for market share amongst the bike companies. So they were spending very freely on race events and on athletes uh, to make an impression in this brand new segment. And another small, small world story is that Julie was a skier at CU the same time I was there a few years ahead of me and on the Alpine team, but the, you know, collegiate skiing is Nordic and Alpine yeah. competing together. Okay. Um, so, um, did and, she have any influence on you get on the mountain bike trail? Was she into it at that point? Uh, well, she actually, you know, when she finished her skiing eligibility, she bike raced and won a road national title, uh, in the collegiate racing. Okay. And I think that was her, her knees were kind of done for skiing at that point. Okay. And, but she was obviously finding that she had a lot of talent on a bike right. and she first found that as a, as a road racer. So, all right. So you're 1993, we're at 1993. Take us through, I guess the next five, six years and how you ended up in the Olympics. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, when I first was getting ready to graduate from school and I was gonna, like I had thought I would go on to maybe a graduate degree and either go to medical school or dental school because my dad and my grandfather were dentists. And so by my senior year, I'd pretty much decided I was going to try to make a go of it as a professional cyclist, which at that point was so odd to my parents. It was right. not really very popular. <laughs> right. And I just thought if I can make, you know, if I can get by and pay all my bills for one season, I'll be satisfied and I'll go into whatever the next stage of workforce is for me. Yeah. And every year that went on, it went a little better and, you know, the contracts got a little better and you win a few more races. And, um, you know, even in high school as a runner in the back of my mind, I had, you know, dreams of the Olympic games and I had the same thing as a skier. And, you know, at the beginning of my professional mountain bike career, mountain biking wasn't in the Olympics, but it wasn't too long until people started talking about that. And so, that dream kind of came back to me too. Um, and you were with so, Trek this whole time. You said you started your relationship with Trek in 93? In, in 93. Okay, so you're with Trek this whole time. 
Yeah. Okay. And so, um, you know, I had pretty steady progression as a young professional in the early nineties and every season was a little better. And in 96, which was, uh, when the games were in Atlanta, um, that was the, that was the first year for mountain biking in the Olympic games. And so I made that a priority and went to all the qualifying races and was kind of having performances that were a level up, you know, as the previous seasons had been and was really in a good position to make the team. And I was at the last qualifying race in Traverse city, Michigan and had been training good and riding good. And my confidence was high. And, uh, we, there were at that point, the Traverse city race had, um, technical options where there was a little shorter route, but it had either a jump or some technical log riding or something like that. And so we were training on the course and trying to master the technical lines for the fastest way around the racetrack. And, um, there was a log that you could kind of ride over and bump over, but it was really fast to come at it with speed and, you know, just bunny hop it. And it was about maybe almost three feet in diameter. Okay. And I'd gone through there and done it and, you know, bumped over it and had gone back to do it again and mistimed it and kissed the rear wheel and went over the bars and I broke my collarbone. Uh. And so that kind of, you know, that was the end of the, you know, my Olympic dreams for those Olympic games. How do you Uh, mentally pull yourself up from that and stick it out for another four years? Um, you know, it was because you work so hard to get to that point of it when that's really what you've put so much energy into for a few years was difficult, but it was really only a couple days, I guess, that I was really down before I just made the decision. Like I'm going to keep doing it and I'm going to go for the 2000 team. So that commitment to just pulling up your socks and making the best out of it and refocusing your energy in a new direction was, I think what, you know, kept my peace of mind intact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it was really that, you know, that refocusing, you know, I had to take, you know, some time off, you know, to heal and then start training again. And then at the end of that season in 96, um, I won my first national race. So there were really just six really big races at that point. And the Northern national series was kind of the premier. It was not, it's changed a little bit now. And that was, uh, in park city. And it was a, one of my favorite and most satisfying races of my entire career. So I got to race head to head back and forth with, you know, someone who was also who I really looked up to, which was John Tomac. And I think there was eight or nine lead changes in that race in Park City um, between John and I. And I had somehow pulled it out at the end and, and you know, won my first really top-level race. And so then the next few years, I was on track to, um, you know, make the Olympic team, started winning more races uh, won the national championship in 99 and it was kind of a two year process of qualifying the very first world cup, which was kind of halfway through these qualifying procedure races mm-hmm. of the 2000 season was in uh, Mazatlan, Mexico. 
and it was really dusty and visibility was bad in the first lap. And I crashed there and I broke my leg. What? And this was in March of 2000. So it kind of looked like it was the same thing all over again. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just did the same thing. I'm like, well, I'm going to do, do what I can and be as diligent as is possible with my rehab. And I went back and had surgery and had my leg put back together and was a, you know, I look back on the level of focus and, and everything now, and it kind of seems a little dysfunctional, but you know, I did every bit of, of rehab that was prescribed and then some, you know, because more is always better. Well, it's, you you definitely, there's a balance and, (laughs) um, but I did a good job of, of finding how much more I could do than the doctor said was appropriate and not overdoing it. And I had two world cups in Canada before the team was selected. And I ended up being the, the first American in both of those races, but just by a couple places. Hmm. And I, I made the 2000 Sydney game team. So that was really the highlight. I think of my racing career was coming back from that injury when the odds were completely against me. Uh, and and, and how long did it take to recover from that? I mean, did you have to, you know, I would get your surgery fixed back together and then you were like, you know, on a bike a few days later, like stationary bike or something a few days later, or how does that work? Uh, yeah. And so I was fabricating my own extremely (laughs) short cranks for my indoor trainer. So as soon as I had, you know, a range of motion of, you know, whatever, a five inch diameter, I was pedaling easy circles. Yeah. And then I would add a longer crank as soon as my range of motion got better. And I think that right at, you know, within the week of the surgery, that circulation really helps speed the recovery in a way that, you know, my surgeon was shocked. Yeah. Um, so that just seems so normal as part of recovery at this point. I mean, back, oh man, it's 20 years now, right? right. I mean, that was, that was a big deal. Yeah. So Interesting. Can you, I want to kind of step back in the, I want to kind of paint a picture of what the, I guess the training and the racing was like during that period, right? We all have a really good picture now of, we see everyone's social media. We see like files and power meters and every data point that you can possibly get. Right. And it's public, like a lot of things, a lot of it's public. We can see it Um, back in, you know, the nineties, that you didn't even know if you didn't know how somebody was doing unless you a gave them a call or saw them out in Mazalan, Mexico. Right. 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 So, so what was it like without, you know, heart rate monitors and power meters knowing what, you know, what people were doing at every race and just, just all that stuff. What was it like on a day-to-day basis for you back then? It was a lot more relaxing because there were way fewer things to waste your energy worrying about. (laughs) You know, um, I think those metrics can all be valuable in learning how your body responds to different types of training. But, you know, the fundamentals of physiology were the same. And I think the training, really, the training was pretty much the same. I did about 50% of my time on a road bike, you know, and I did quite a bit of road racing um, to supplement, you know, the mountain bike racing. And uh, it's pretty much what pros do now. Yeah. 
just less distraction. A bigger, a bigger thing was that uh, the races were generally longer, and in the interest of making things more spectator friendly and more dynamic racing, the the Olympic distance for cross country racing has gotten shorter over the years, and so the type of effort is is kind of more now like a cyclocross effort than a long endurance effort with shorter climbs. And so you you adjust your training and do more explosive training for those short efforts. But in general, the amount of time you're training and the distribution between different disciplines that are good supplementation for mountain bike racing really hasn't changed that much. Okay. Did you have uh, a favorite workout or a favorite place in, you know, a trail or something in Durango that you'd always use for specific training? Like looking back, you're like, oh, I used to do this and that was like my favorite or my least favorite. Um, but something that kind of sticks out in your mind as far as your training back then? Well, I would say my my favorite workout is really an evolution of a high school cross country workout, which is well, quarter repeats. And I applied that in mountain bike racing just with one minute repeats. And as far as like when I was getting to the important races in the season, that that's the really interval structure that did, you know, seem to, my body seemed to respond the best to. So a minute full gas and a minute recovery. Could you still do that now? <laughs> um, yeah, I still do that now. Okay. You know, um, a little little harder to motivate myself (laughs) but it's you know it's also i still race too not only because it's one of the best litmuses to test product but you know it keeps me motivated and it keeps me from drinking too much beer and keeps me from not getting enough sleep and all those kind of things just like i mean it's the same reason why lots and lots of people race yeah absolutely and we'll get to that in a little bit here because uh you don't just do a little bit you do you've been You've been kind of busy, so <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, can you let's talk about the Olympics a little bit? Um, sure. You know, you were thrilled to to be able to get there after, especially you know after the injury. Uh, what's it what What's it like racing the Olympics? Is it is it like that notch above that people talk about it? Like, or is it just more distracting when you get there? Like, what's the whole experience like? Well, I, I think it's both of those things. There's a lot of additional distraction and that's just because the scale of the event is like nothing you've ever seen before um i kind of felt like i was in this big time international you know sport of professional cycling you know and i quickly realized when i got to the olympic games that it was a u.s and eurocentric sport and there was a lot of athletes and a lot of the rest of the world that were um, you know, com- competing, it, it made the cycling world seem small when you're in the parade of nations and you're waiting in the stadium to walk in, uh, to the opening ceremonies. And there are 200 teams there from different countries. And if you look at a normal international field at a world cup, you might have only 10 right. or maybe 20. So that put a big perspective on on the rest of the world and how small international cycling actually was mm-hmm. and how big the, you know, the event of the Olympic games was. So, yeah. 
Did you have any expectations going into it as far as just not even the, the riding neck, you know, you, you mentioned the number of people, but was there anything else that surprised you or kind of opened your eyes or maybe something that you expected going into it that was completely different? You know, maybe it was the just simple as something like the, the hotel had how they had it set up for you. Was it worse or let, you know, anything that kind of just, whoa. I didn't well, know. I, you know, I think the athlete village and seeing, you know, athletes from all different sports from all over the world, um, walking around the athlete village, that was a kind of a profound experience. And, you know, you could start to pick out where you're like, well, that person that's, you know, four ten, that's probably a gymnast. And that (laughs) seven, five is probably a basketball player. And, um, that was pretty interesting. And just seeing how those different dynamics interacted, like I flew over, you know, from the U S to Sydney with a couple of cyclists, but not too many. And it was on a big jumbo jet, but I had the, um, the shooting team on my plane. Hmm. And even on the shooting team, the difference between, um, the, the rifle marksmen and the skeet shooters. So the shotgun, the, the shotgun disposition and the rifle disposition, like those, there was like a cultural clash between That's those so two funny. people. It's really funny. Yeah. Um, you know, they just had different backgrounds. Right. Um, but it was really cool to have, I mean, the Olympics is the Olympics because you have all the different sports together on one team and you don't see that any other place. So. Yeah. Were you just, did you kind of think to yourself that when you first got there and you're going through this, like, what am I supposed to be like, what am I doing here? Is this real? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's on a scale that makes it hard to believe too. Like it's such a commercial property. So like the scale <laughs> right. of, of the opening ceremonies was kind of mind blowing. And I, you know, I, I had expected to be turned off by the commercialization and, um, uh, I kind of expected, well, that it's just so commercialized, it's going to be a letdown. Mm-hmm. And it was actually the opposite. Like, actually having the whole world in one place to compete kind of exceeded my expectations for how special it was. Does that keep you interested now? Like, do you, you know, when the the summer or winter games come up, do you have a little bit more interest to watch it just to see what's going on and how, or not really? Well, you know, I th- I don't think you get, I guess, you know, they get the opening ceremonies, but, um, that it, I am more interested for sure okay. because I can, I guess I can relate to, to, you know, when those athletes are in the parade mm-hmm. out into the stadium, like what that feels like. And it's nostalgic for me. Mm-hmm. So I love, I love watching that stuff. Um, and I love watching the competitions as well. Uh, yeah. Cause I mean, obviously, cause you know what it took to get there and you can just kind of see, I mean, I, I like, I, I'm nowhere near the Olympics. I, I like it for that fact where you, yeah. you know, even if it's like badminton guys, right. I don't even know if badminton's still a sport in the Olympics, but um, there is like a story of 15 years leading up to that. Sure. You know? So yeah. you just, without and even I hearing think, a story, you know that what they went through to get there. Right. And because I think that Olympic dream, you know, takes hold in kids early, that story is a lot of years for most of the people there. So, just the whole environment is 
particularly emotionally charged for sporting events. Um, and another thing that just compounds, you know, the specialness of that event. Mm -hmm. Talk about the race a little bit. How'd it go? Um, I would say it didn't go well for me. I think I ended up 32nd and, you know, I had ambitions to have the best race of my career and, um, it, it just didn't go that way. I think I had spent so much of my energy to just get there that honestly I was not in, in my best form and I was maybe a little complacent just being there. Um, do you regret that a little bit or are you, you happy with you're um, fine now looking back? You know, I, I, well, I would, I think as an athlete, you always want to have had a better race than you did. Um, you know, that's just the nature of someone who's driven to be as good as they can possibly be. Um, and I don't, but I don't know if I could have changed anything. You know, I, I, I did have a lot of satisfaction and kind of surprised myself by making the team and having good world cups so soon after my surgery. Um, and I probably, I, I, the only, in it, when I look back on training mistakes, it's almost always doing too much rather than doing too little. I could have been more conservative about, you know, that last month and done less and probably had a better race and had better morale, but I wouldn't second, I can't, you can't second guess right. anything. Yeah. It was no, still I just, I mean, experience of a lifetime. Right. I mean, I, I notice it, I guess with, with kids and aging, I mean, you're, you're not old, but you're older than I am, but I'm, I'm getting that point. I think it's kids bring it on just life and stuff. And you start realizing different things as you grow older. Right. So that's why I was curious looking back at that point, 15, 16, 15, 16 years ago, you know, if that changes things or if you're still like, you know, when you're doing one eight minute intervals right now, you're like, man, it would have got me five more spots back then or 10 more spots. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing where you're like, you know what? And you, you kind of go back to that time and it kind of like always hurts I, or not. I don't do that because I, I, it's, <laughs> it's not healthy. Right. right. Because there's you can't do anything about it. It right. just turns into regret. So, yep. you know. It's good to hear it, that coming from an Olympian. Yeah. None of us are Olympians, right? We, <laughs> so it's it's reassuring but, to us that to, to be you know okay. the funny thing is, and I and I get more in touch with it as I as I age as an athlete is that you know the the race for athletes, whether they're amateurs or pros, and the experience of finding your people and you know turning the screws on them and them turning the screws on you and them getting something out of you that you didn't think you had is the same for the best pro or a beginning amateur. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing about sport. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I have one more question about Olympics and then we can kind of roll on here. Your daughter, does she, does she like ever ask, like, do you guys have a discussion? So I didn't really intro that one, but Travis has, what is she 13? You said, or 12? Uh, my daughter is 12. Okay. Does yeah. she ever, is that something where, Hey, my dad was an was an Olympian and she's like, Oh, whatever. He's just rides all the time. Um, I, I don't no, I don't think she, we didn't never talk about it. Okay. And one time I, I spoke at her grade school about my Olympic experience and 
it wasn't until that that she really asked me questions about the Olympics. Um, but, you know, she she wasn't around for the peak part of my recent career. Right. So right. that's kind of a, you know, a completely – that might as well have been a hundred years ago. I yeah. think to her in some regards. <laughs> yep. yep. I just, my, my kids aren't that age. So I, you know, I don't know what it's like for them to ask for previous, you know, for the life prior to them. So I was interested to see if she, if you ever had that discussion. Cause for kids, they're like, Oh, it's my dad. Big deal. You know, it's mostly like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I will find out someday what it's like to have a, uh, well, teenage daughter, um, right? But uh, we'll get there. All right. There's so, nothing you can do about it. No, <laughs> exactly. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, I, I want to get your take. You know, part of that I asked you what it was like training uh, and training and racing back then, and what the scene was like when you're first breaking in, because obviously a lot of things have changed. And I mean, you're still in the racing scene, not necessarily like the you know the what would be the the series of cross country, you know, pro series like pro XCT or anything like that. But, um, you, you're well entrenched in the cycling industry with track and with advocacy, advocacy, racing yourself, just doing all this stuff. What have you seen? Let's talk about from a racing perspective. Then we can talk about from a bike perspective. And I didn't even ask you, but we'll, I'll get to the bike. I forgot. I was going to ask you what bike you rode in the, the Olympic, uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um, what have you seen change? And I mean, is it, it's not necessarily for the better, for the worse, but what have you seen change in the course of the last 15, 16, 17, 20 years besides the point of getting shorter courses? Um, well, there are, I think as, as an industry, like racing events, um, there's really been continual growth. And the number of racers and the number of race opportunities and race days continues to grow. And from an industry standpoint, you know, the mountain bike segment is continued to grow. As far as opportunities for professional racers, those and that, you know, the the salaries and the number of opportunities have come down from those early days where all the teams were competing to make their claim within this brand new segment, which was called mountain biking. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, bike companies were willing to spend a lot more money to show that they were a mountain bike brand for this new segment that in all the projections was phenomenal. And so everyone was really excited about that. Um, now and they there's don't been, have to, um, yeah, they don't have to, um, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out all the different factors that go into what contributes to yeah. different salaries. You know, in the beginning, in the early mountain bike days or the early part of my mountain bike racing career, you know, there were more better opportunities racing mountain bikes for the things we've discussed so far yeah. than there were domestically for road racing. So the most, some of the most talented road racers were switching over to race mountain bikes. Yeah. And now that flow is kind of going the other way. The most talented cycling athletes to find the best opportunities. If you define the best opportunities as the highest salaries are, uh, turning to race on the road. So do you think they'll swing back at any point? Uh, I think it's a cyclical thing that probably will 
swing back the other way. You know, the, the, the thing with mountain biking is that it's still a very young sport and it's still very formative and organic. And we still have brand new disciplines like enduro that are, you know, booming and fat bike racing booming gravel grinders, which is kind of a, a reinvention of, you know, historic road racing, which I think is wonderful and super cool. Um, but you know, that kind of pie in, at least in the mountain bike end of things, that kind of pioneering, um, drive that I want to ride a bike where I didn't think I could ride a bike is driving a lot of product developers and engineers to come up with new stuff. And fat bikes are a great example of that. And that, you know, that segment is influencing summer riding in a big way also where, I mean, I do rides, high country rides in the mountains on old, uh, mining infrastructure that I wouldn't consider riding on a regular bike. Cause it just, it's so rough and loose and blown out that you'd be pushing, but on a bike with five inch tires, you know, at six pounds, you can ride 90% of it and it lets you access new stuff. So, um, you know, th- those things are, are contributing to the mountain bike into things and probably will come around to changing that, that, that flow of interest is from racing standpoint too. Yeah. And, and I'll ask you for regular racers, not, let's say not the pro XCT, but all the other races you mentioned. So we have, you know, the growth in the last 25 years, we've seen, I mean, everything from 24 hour racing kick up to basically, you know, there's a few left that are really popular, but basically gone compared to what it used to be. You have, um, the last 10 years, a rise of a hundred, there are so many hundred mile races out there. It's crazy. I mean, right. this is just mountain biking, right? And this if you would ask me in the middle of my, you know, the peak of my racing career in the late nineties, early two thousands, about a hundred mile mountain bike race, I would have said that, that is going to be so hard. You can't get six people to do it. Right. You know, in the whole country and look what's happened to it. Yeah. I mean, you showed up at uh, last year's tell. So listeners, this to give you an idea of what he's still doing. He showed up last year and I don't have all the races you did, but Last year is the 2015, the Telluride 100, which people uh, can argue, which is the, you know, this is the hardest hundred. This is the hardest hundred. That's a pretty stiff uh, ride to do the Telluride 100. And he finished in third place in eight hours, 19 minutes. (laughs) So that was a hard day in the saddle. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but so yeah, going back and looking, looking forward, you would have never, you would have if somebody would have told you at that point back then that you were going to do that, you'd be like, you're nuts. Yeah. I would have said you're nuts. I'll never do that. Yeah. And actually, I have a quote here too, from a 24 solo, you made a cameo appearance in that movie and <laughs> they asked you about 24 hour racing. You said, you're never going to find out how much fun 24 hour racing is particularly solo. <laughs> well, so. and I've stuck to that, <laughs> stuck yeah. to that, yeah, but that's, that's I, I would consider maybe a 12 hour race solo. Um, you know, I think at, the longer races become more appealing as as your physiology ages as an athlete. Yeah. Um, you know, you just you lose less for those long endurance things as you do the short, you know, high power stuff. So, yeah. what did people do that were into this kind of stuff twenty years ago? What did they do that were into the ultra like, uh, doing like endurance type things? Like looking back, I mean, there was only a couple of races here or there, or like twenty five years ago before. 
Well, uh, we just go out and ride long days and not really race each other. How, what was it like back then? For well, we did. I think you know the, a long ride was still you know four, five, six hour ride. You know that was the same twenty years ago as it is now. Um, there weren't events though that you okay. could train for, and I and honestly I don't think you really the best training for a two hour race is probably the best training for a hundred mile race. If you try training the vol, like increasing your volume to kind of mimic the effort that you're going to put out in a hundred mile race, you're just going to be toast. <laughs> so, um, a lot. we've learned yeah. a lot over the process of, I think we're kind of heading back that way. Right. Cause popular, if you looked at it five years ago and said, okay, they're out doing all these massive hours and stuff. And now people are like, well, I don't have to do that. I have my right. power meter. I can dial it in. I can crank out, you know, two hour rides and I know what my levels are so I can stick at my, you know, 75% of this for this long. You know right. what I mean? So. Well, and managing fatigue is probably the most important thing. And it's a lot easier to manage the fatigue from high intensity than it is from high volume. Mm-hmm. And so you you need some high volume, but not you know, what people thought you needed 20 years ago. Right. Interesting. All right. I want to go back to bikes because I want to talk about changes in bikes and get in the fat bikes you've been doing. I mean, you're like the go-to person for talking about this kind of stuff, but what, what were you on back in, uh, let's say the Olympics 2000, what were you riding Uh, there? So uh, at the Olympics in 2000, I rode, uh, a first generation Trek top fuel. So full suspension, 26 inch wheel bike. And, um, I had had a history with full suspension bikes. Um, I rode a full suspension bike when I rode for Manitou as an expert, I did some test riding for a company called Boulder bicycles, which was one of the first, um, companies to make a production full suspension mountain bike. Um, but up to that point with Trek, I was riding carbon hardtails. So we did have, uh, well, that's, that's not exactly true. We had, uh, the Y bike. So we raced on that quite a bit, okay. but it was, it was the first generation of the top fuel that I raced on at the Olympics. And it wasn't even a production one. It was one that, that it was kind of prototype level to get it ready for the Olympic games. Okay. Have you always been interested? Like you seem, I'm not going to say geek ish but you seem pretty geeky you seem like a geek about all this bike stuff has that always been the case yeah i am a bike nerd okay and my you know i i finished school with a microbiology degree and with pre-med requisites like i had said i considered going to medical school or dental school but i started and did my first two years in the engineering department there and so you know development and design and engineering of the bicycle I i think the bicycle's just a magical machine that allows you to go so far on just your own power. So I'm still compulsed by, by the bike and what it can do and what it might be able to do if we change something. Hmm. So when did you get into that realm of testing and stuff for tracker? Was that kind of always been, you know, that was kind of the part of the process as you were, obviously you were trying these bikes out and stuff for Olympics and going further but when did it kind of switch over to become okay this is my primary objective is to test things for them and to ride this and ride that and do all that kind of well that that i moved off of the race team and into the product department in 2005 
Okay. Um, but l- leading up to that, you know, there's, there was kind of like, there was kind of two types of racers. There was the racer, uh, that wanted a coach to tell him what workouts to do and what bike to ride. And so they didn't have to worry about it. And then there was a kind of racer that wanted to figure out what workouts to do and try every type of option on the bike, even if it might blowing up in their face once in a while. And that's the kind of racer I was. Okay. So I early on in my relationship at Trek tried to be a resource, you know, for product development and product feedback. Um, with a full-time racing schedule, it's really difficult to be a reliable resource, but, um, that was something that I was really interested in and was important to me. And as my time went on, it was something that I knew I wanted to transition into. And so they fortunately gave me the opportunity to apply all that nerdiness as a racer to full-time developing product for them. But you worked hard to get there too. I mean, that's, like you said, your full-time schedule and doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a lesson for all the, uh, the people. Cause you constantly, how do you get into the business? How do you do this? And it's like, well, here's an answer for you. You're here yeah. right now. And so I, at that point I had built relationships over, I would have been 13 or 14 years of racing for Trek at the point that I moved over into the product department. Um, so, and I feel very thankful for that transition, um, as a racer into, into the industry, you know, that's not, it's not a easy lifestyle to go into anything else, the pro bike racer lifestyle. Right, right. Um, so it's definitely, I'm very fortunate to have made the transition that I did. What, um, when you started doing the, when you made the transition and you started doing this product testing and, um, if we were to go back to those days, what would you say is in terms of, did you expect things to change as much as they have? And is it, to me, it seems like things have changed so much so quickly. There's so many different options and I'm not saying this is bad. I think it's bad. I think it's, it's really cool to see unfold. Is it from the inside perspective, from your perspective, seeing all the changes being part of it? Is it what, I mean, going back to that point, could you ever imagined what it's like now? Um, yeah, I wouldn't have imagined fat bikes, you know, in 2000, that's for sure. Okay. Um, and that was just when, you know, that was the, when two niners were having a big challenge to their place in the market. Um, and you know, even there was a lot of criticism about the legitimacy of full suspension at that point. So, and that, you know, that had been around already for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, um, there are some things that surprise me and, you know, some things that surprise me haven't already been done. So, you know, I'm definitely in a good job to not really ever be satisfied with product. Right. What I are you surprised? I hasn't can't, been done yet? I can't, uh, well, you know, there are, um, well, stuff that's just starting to happen with suspension and fat bikes. Okay. You know, those bikes are pretty amazing four season bikes or summer bikes, you know, with the right design around them. And that's something that's just, just starting to happen. So, uh, getting, yeah, I'm surprised there's only one suspension fork for the fat bike category. Right. 
Um, and you know, this is the new mid fat or whatever you call it, two and 2.8 to three inch tire. You know, that has a lot of growth that from my first experience on it, I'm surprised it's not actually growing faster. So, um, there's a lot of things left to experiment with. I can't, can't reveal everything. Well, that, I know it's on my wish list and in, in my, in the development pipeline, but right. there's, there, there's a ton left to do in mountain bikes. Yeah. I just read a, a interview that you had done, uh, with Meriwether and he asked you a question about your desert, or your desert Island bike. And basically if you had one bike to take to a desert Island or a deserted Island rather, um, what would it be? And I found it interesting in that whole thing. Like I keyed in on that. You said that there's a tire that is wider and larger diameter than anything that exists yet. This is back. This is only 2015 that you said this. So, um, and I've heard people say, you know, that people that are into it, like, well, we haven't hit the, like, it seems like it's the widest you can go. Um, but I'm interested to see where that goes. Any thoughts on that? Um, well, right now, you know, there's one tire that's over five inches and you pretty much have to come up with a, a whole new drivetrain with, with standard to make that tire work. So people have to accept wider cranks and wider hubs to go wider than we are right now. Um, I think in that category that additional diameter gives you more traction and more flotation too without the same compromises as making that extra step and widening the drivetrain once again. So right. I, I'd expect development in the fat bike category. I think there's more potential in larger diameter with the existing largest tire rather than even wider tires. Right. And there's a, there's some pretty good science in the agricultural industry and the defense industry on studies of, tire diameters and widths and efficiencies in different soft terrains hmm. that I think supports larger diameter hmm. over so basically like a tractor, t- what, how efficient a tractor is going over certain conditions. So you can maximize the, yeah, maximize your, your fuel, fuel efficiency. Yeah. Um, hmm. and that's why they're tractor tires that are, you know, eight feet tall. It's hmm. a really good point. I never really thought about that. I guess that's why I'm not testing for Trek. <laughs> All right. So let, let's go back a little bit. Cause you've, you've had some interesting bikes under in the process here. You've, like you said, riding, uh, initially the Y bike, you've had uh top fuel and then you moved into 29 er type of stuff. I remember. So the first, when I kind of got into it, I was, my first like real bike was a, a Gary Fisher Ferris 29 er. Like that was my first like real bike. So yeah, 10 years ago. Um, but then where I kind of learned about you in that early process was the, the 69er. So right. know, that it was a crazy bike, a 29 front, 26 rear. Um, people were like, where the hell did this come from? Right. Um, I rode the top fuel. I had a top fuel 69er. No way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. I, yeah. I bought that bike cause I, I really liked, it was like, oh man, this is really cool. Like different, you know? So mm-hmm. I rolled that. I really liked it. I bought it and I raced that, um, for like a year and a half. I did 24 hours at Moab on that bike. Cool. Um, yeah, it was, it was cool. I liked the platform. Um, but so the uh, way that bike came about was, um, we were at a Trek was at a point with the Trek brand and the Gary Fisher brand and the Gary Fisher brand was our two niner brand. Yep. 
And we felt that we couldn't have a Trek 2.9er and a Gary Fisher 2.9er on the sales floor or they would cannibalize each other. And so we wanted some of that uh, 2.9er stability, steering stability and steering traction. And I thought it was a pretty elegant solution to that problem was to ride the 6.9er. And so we, you know, it wasn't until we actually tried it, but I said, maybe we should just try a larger front wheel and a 26 inch rear wheel. Not the same as a two niner. And so that's how that whole project happened. Um, it really was a little too progressive at that point for Trek to stick with it and make it successful. We do continue to use mixed wheel platforms in our testing and prototype to understand better the unique roles of a front tire and a rear tire. And there are companies that have done subsequent studies that show that it does give a favorable, unique ride that's different than 650B or different than full 2.9. Well, and it, so it doesn't I think stop see it from, come back around. Yeah, and here's the thing is now you're dealing with a full selection of 27.5 tires and rims right. as well. So you don't have to do 29, 26. You can do 29 and 27.5, whatever you want to call it, 650, 27.5. There are other options. Yeah. So um, I'm interested to see, because I liked it. Like I I really like. there was just not a whole lot of, like you can do that with any bike, but it's just not set up to do that in a lot of situations. So it kind of comes out funky. Right. Um, But I don't know. It was interesting. So that's, that's where I kind of got in that. And, I was going to ask you further, you know, going from that to, you know, all the fat bike testing, what was a bike during that process that kind of stuck out to you? Like, wow, I'm I'm really surprised by this. And like, this is going to be something. Um, well, the, the, the previous year to that top fuel six, nine, when we just had the single speed, mm-hmm. that bike is a, on my favorite list for sure. Okay, cool. And, it used a dual crown fork for a cross country type bike, which was unheard of. It had used a Maverick fork, yep. um, which is just starting to come, you know, as a as a credible option for that type of riding. And that fork was amazing, and that bike was amazing. Um, I think uh, you know, in more recent history, the opportunities of going from twenty six to twenty seven five for fat bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, is showing a lot of potential and I, I really expect the industry to turn in that direction from the testing that I've done of apples to apples, the same tire in 26, the same tire in 27.5 for the conditions that you want to ride a fat bike in, which are generally loose or soft or slick or all of the above going to a larger diameter is pretty much just better. Um, the stash is another, kind of project that um was out there for us to do and we had to develop a tire and we had to get a vendor to develop a fork and um we had a really brilliant engineer which came up with a unique way to build the frame and still have a really short rear end on it Mm -hmm. um and i still work with that guy his name's ted Alsop. um so I'm, i'm proud of that bike too i think it's we're doing really well with it and I, it has a broad appeal that I didn't expect. So I have a, a pretty 
broad group of field testers that that um, test different categories for me. Obviously, one person can only write so much, but I have a couple dozen field testers that I manage, and that goes from full gravity guys to you know multi day endurance guys. And that bike appeals to both ends of the spectrum. You know, the the downhill racers that that like to ride at the pump track and dirt jump love that bike because it has all this cross country efficiency and still a really quick feel like a dirt jump bike. And, you know, the guys who want to do multi-day Colorado trail type missions, that three inch 29 by three inch tire is just amazing in that situation. So, and groomed. So if it's hard pack groomed single track, like a lot of stuff you get uh, upper Midwest is really popular for that. Um, you know, that type of platform on a lot of those trails when they're in riding condition and packed and groomed. I mean, that's, yeah, it's if, a fun, if it's the snow is firm enough that you right. can ride a 29 by three inch tire. Yeah. It's way faster it's than, than really, a fat. Yeah. So obviously conditions, whatever, but like I said, like you said, it, it relates to a lot of different people. Is yeah. Point. So, yeah. And it, and it had a broad appeal that I mm-hmm. definitely didn't expect. And let me tell you, I I was looking at it just from a the just from one point, the point being that stranglehold dropout. Because yeah, I can run that thing single speed with that nice little dropout, and I can have all the different. I could set up six different wheel sets and go back and forth. It's like it's a nice slick. Yeah, it's a really it has a it's a really versatile bike, and the Farley's the same way. It has the same dropout and allows you to run it bunch of different wheel options in it you know we don't spec a farley with a two nine plus wheel but i've ridden it that way quite a bit mm-hmm. and um it's awesome my my wife has pretty nice bikes and she her go-to bike was a top fuel or a, a fuel ex 9.9 and i set up a carbon farley with two nine plus wheels and carbon rims and she hasn't ridden her fuel ex since really nice. yeah do you, so. there's that angle with that too, with the fat bikes and you're a good person to ask with the, with your wife saying they're doing that. Um, is that where you capturing a lot of the, the women customers, maybe the, the newer women riders? Cause I know intimidation becomes a big issue, right? And if you're newer, newer rider, whether you're women or not, but it just seems from my experience that it's easier to get, uh, you know, like my wife on a bike, if she's not going to fall over on the trail. Yeah. Right. Do you do you find that in discussions like your like your wife like she can ride over everything and anything now and she just doesn't want to ride the other one. Well, it, yeah. Any technology you can come up with that allows somebody to clean something and feel relaxed about it when they rode it on something else and were white knuckling it or came off <laughs> is immediately right. They're not going back. So. Larger tires do that, whether it's going from 2.2 to 3 or, you know, 2.2 to 4.5. Um, you know, there's a weight penalty that's completely acceptable for lots and lots of riders for that extra stability. Right. The other thing, you know, in terms of from a fat bike perspective, is you get half the country that's still like, oh, I'm never going fat bike, you know, for the whole, we don't get snow here. Um Snow it is a big deal. Like it's fat bike season when it's winter in the upper portions of the country and Canada and anywhere else it has snow. Um, but I think it has, you know, I start seeing uh, people discuss it that are from Southern States. They're like, I have no reason for that. It's heavy, all this stuff. 
But here's the one thing that I see fat bikes doing is fat bikes were like this, you know, basically they put us to Pluto, right? And now it's filling in. Now we're going to explore every other planet on the way to Pluto. So all this other uh, width tires and uh, rims and all this other discussion that those people are having about their summer bike or their, their other bikes wouldn't have never happened as quickly. They probably happen at some point, but not as quickly as if fat bikes, you know, the the whole fat bike movement pushed that discussion up. You're absolutely right. The, you know, um, qualities, um, risk with creating the Pugsley and all the unique things they had to do to make that bike happen. If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't be discussing plus category now. Right. Um, and so, you know, somebody, anybody going out on a limb and setting a new bookend for product that's way out there, that frees up all the other designers to, to go in that middle ground without feeling so risky. And it really accelerates, you know, the progress of things. So, right. so my answer to all those people is if you're bitching about fat bikes because you don't, you're not going to use them down there. Well, you wouldn't be riding the tires and looking at wider rims, you know, at this point in time, it'd be more like five or 10 years on the road. If this wasn't fat bikes, weren't so popular. So, yeah. And th- there was the same public discourse about two niners. Yeah. Which is, you know, when you look 15, back at it 15 years ago, it's like, really? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to, we're going to switch total gears here in another, uh, talking point. We're not going to Dell. We're not going to get re- de- real, detailed. Um, but I want to just get your opinion and your take and some experience with, um, the whole sustainable trails coalition and the IMBA discussion going on right now. Cause it's a, it's a huge deal. It's a huge point in mountain biking because, uh, you know, there's a lot of things at stake. Um, you have a ton of experience. I mean, your whole career has been basically based off of trails, right? Right. Um, and, uh, what's your take? What's your experience? What's your thoughts? I want to hear some, Thoughts no, like access to trails, access to trails is imperative for my racing career and the rest of my livelihood, you know, beyond that. So, um, advocacy is a really important part of my life. And, um, I'm married to the director of the local advocacy group here at trails 2000. And my wife also served on the Ember board as vice president for 10 years. Um, and I think, you know, the, the divisiveness with the new sustainable trails coalition between them and Imba isn't necessary. And it seems to be going in the right direction since the original kind of, uh, friction between those two organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, wilderness affects people differently depending on where in the country you live, you know, in Colorado, there's a lot of public land and, Right around me, there's a lot of wilderness, um, hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness. Um, and so it, it does affect me as a rider. And I think it's a, it's worth, it's a topic that's worth being addressed, you know, whether the original intention of the wilderness bill was to exclude human powered recreation and a mountain bike. And I understand the political landscape and, uh, the compromise, um, you know, from Imba's standpoint on wilderness bills, 
But I, I, I think that question needs to be asked. And I donated to the Sustainable Trials Coalition myself. So um, I think it's forced IMBA to address the issue of wilderness in a little more forceful way than they had in the past. And I think that's good. That's good for riders. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be either or. That's, does, that's that, the point that I really want to drive home with listeners, especially. Um, don't just read I, one of those open letters and jump on it and say, oh, Imba's bad, like they've been taking our money and doing nothing with it because that's not the case either. I, I completely agree. And I think Imba doesn't have to sacrifice the diplomacy and the relationships that they've built in working with uh, Wilderness Society and Sierra Club and other organizations to come up with good solutions where there are new wilderness bills being proposed. And we had one of those down here with the new um, West Weemanooch Wilderness and the Hermosa Wilderness. And everyone got at the table and discussed a good solution where some of the prime mountain bike trails, namely the Colorado Trail, was not included. And there were other trails, you know, that were sacrificed to get that outside the boundaries. And it was a good, it was really, ultimately it was a good solution because that level of protection um, is good. And I think, I think for the most part, maybe universally mountain bikers are conservationists. Um, So, you know, they, they value that protection. And I think in many cases are willing to make some sacrifices if it's the only way to permanently protect the land, but it's usually not. There are other designations too. So, yeah. So takeaway is discussion definitely needs to happen and, uh, don't just jump and And my point again, don't just jump on one side or the other. There's valid points on both. They both need to work together. And, uh, the more divisive we get as mountain bikers and that's not a good thing. So, right. So I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm, I'm positive with how it's, how it's been going. I just, I hate to see the mob of mountain bikers jump on one way or the other because, right. uh, yeah. Well, hopefully as it evolves and matures, um, right. I, I, like I, like we both said, I think it has from the first conflict, I think it's going in a good direction. So, right. So hopefully we can all, uh, we can, we can have access to, we don't have to take detours in the Colorado trail if you want to ride the thing. Right. Have you ridden the Colorado trail? <laughs> yeah. I used to live right. So when we lived in Colorado, I lived at the Waterton Canyon oh, cool. about a mile from Waterton Canyon. So I rode segments one and two quite often. Um, so I live right at the South end. Yeah. Like 15 minutes from my house is right. the southern terminus. And this yeah. summer I managed to find carve out, you know, a few days and I, Rode up to the Waterton Canyon oh, Trail. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. How it was, was it? It was fantastic. Yeah. What was your um, was there a favorite portion in there that you remember, like a segment, or just the whole thing was just really cool? Um, you know, it's all unique. It changes a lot as you get closer to the Front Range. Yeah. Um, you know, more populated. Um, this after seeing it all, I think the San Juan section okay. uh, on the southern end is the prettiest to me. The highest, most rugged mountains. Unfortunately, I wasn't getting stormed on then, or I would maybe would have not had that same opinion. Right. Um, but if and I would, if anybody can figure out how to carve the time out to do something like that, that was amazing experience. And what's a normal? Just to give people an idea, how many days did you take to do it? Um, I took about eight days. Okay. 
Um, so I was sleeping full. I was riding all day, but I was sleeping full nights. So I guess really technically it was seven and a half days. Okay. So I averaged about 65 miles a day. Okay. And 65 miles listeners, if you're not from there might seem like, ah, no big deal. 65 miles on the Colorado trail is a big day. Yeah. There's some, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's, that's a big day. Trail right. When, when you're loaded with camping gear. Right. Is there anything going, looking back on that, that you'd offer maybe tips if listener, you know, there's quite a few people that are going to be doing it. I'm sure any tips or thoughts, like things you'd fix or do differently next time, not carry, carry. Um, I would, I think I had my gear pretty sorted out. I might, I'm, I did a full tent. Um, I used a fly, big Agnes fly Creek tent. I probably could have gone with like a more minimal bivy bag. I definitely, there wasn't, definitely wasn't anything I didn't take. I think okay. you get really weight sensitive. So if I did it again, I would probably be cutting things out like okay. a few less clothes and go a little more minimalist. Cause you know, that self-supported mission, you end up with a pretty heavy bike that doesn't really feel like a trail bike at all. So what were you riding? Like a stash? I rode the stash. Okay. Um, so a 29 plus hardtail, and I thought it was excellent for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Colorado trail is, um, when we first moved to just Southwest of Denver, uh, that was one of my, like we bought a house right away, which I probably wouldn't recommend for everybody is just show up in a city and buy a house. But, um, uh, that was kind of one of my requirements is to be close to trails. And I was, you know, digging through data and uh, trail information. I, I didn't really look as close as I probably should have. And um, it turned out to be really, I knew the Colorado Trail was there, but I didn't really know the scope of what I was getting into. And once I finally got out there and was exploring back there, uh, I couldn't believe what we ran into. Like, it was, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Like it's 0.8 miles to get down to the Colorado. Well, Waterton Canyon, it's a road for six miles, but still it was like a whole new world. Pretty sweet. Yeah. And then, uh, I only did it once a buddy and I rode to Breckenridge from our, from my place. So I woke up in the morning, rode my bike out of the garage, met him down at the parking lot and we rode to Breckenridge. Awesome. Pretty cool. I did that road race a couple of times from Boulder to Breckenridge. Oh, really? So when, when did they do that? That was been in shoot uh, mid nineties. Oh wow! Um, so it was one hundred and six. It's kind of really ahead of its time as far as the ultra gravel grinders. One hundred and six yeah. miles. What route did it went, take? Uh, went up Left Hand Canyon and over Oh My God Road, which yep. is dirt, and then Guanella Pass, yep. which used to be dirt, and then up two eighty five and over Hoosier Pass. Oh, wow. Down into Breckenridge. Wow. That's really cool. Wow. All right, cool. That's something, uh, that's a big ride still. I mean, like you said, uh, what is it? Gwinnell paved, but at this point, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I haven't been back over since it's been paved, yeah. but when still we did, ride. there were people, so we would switch bikes. If we had that option, we could get a team car to get you a bike and oh, switch geez. a cross bike or a mountain bike for okay. Gwinnell pass. Cause it was pretty rough. Okay. Huh? Well, that's cool. All right. So I have, we're going to wrap this up soon, but I have, um, one of the mountain bike radio member listeners, uh, was asking, uh, one of your, what's your favorite, I'll give you two options. You have, you have two, 
Okay. Uh, favorite places <laughs> to ride that you've you've ridden all over. It could be racing. It could be any point in time over your entire career. If you had two places to pick, what would you say? Trails. Air, first of all, area and then trail. Um. Okay, so area. I think the southwest and corners where I'm at now is the best diversity. And so I'm two hours from Moab and three and a half hours from Fruta and have the San Juans here right out my back door. So as far as an area, I think I'm, I found the sweet spot. Um, East coast riding, you know, when I was racing out there a lot, I love the Mount snow course, um, really rooty and slick and, a different type of technical riding than I had experienced in the West. So it took me a few years to embrace that type of riding, but I like riding there and abroad. My favorite place would be New Zealand. Okay. Amazing landscape and culture and they're gung ho building awesome mountain bike trails. Yeah. That's what you find. Like I've found through mountain bike radio is Australia, New Zealand, uh, a lot more traffic than I ever anticipated. Yeah. So, yeah, they dig it. Do you, um, do you have any favorite trails? Like if I, if I were to give you one trail to ride, you don't have to give away your home secret, but, uh, <laughs> unless you want to bring a bunch of people there, but you know, I, you know, right. A great thing about Durango is that, you know, from town, you can ride your bike within five or 10 minutes to really four different trail networks and 20 minutes. You can be on the Colorado trail. And because of the, geologic diversity those you know it's kind of rim rock pinion juniper on the south side of town on the north side of town it starts pine forest and goes to aspen forest and there's smooth trails on shale and there's super rocky trails so um every i get asked what my favorite trail in durango is a lot and i usually have a different answer because okay. it's what rode that week <laughs> yeah and what what you had time for or what the weather I, was like or what you're in the mood for, yeah. you know, the, the last, you know, once it's summer, we try to get up and ride those last two segments of the Colorado trail from Molas to Durango as often as possible. Okay. Just beautiful area. And yeah, I like big, long stretches above timberline, you know, with views all day. So that's amazing. Yeah. All right. I have a couple more questions from you or for you. Um, I'm curious I'm always curious. That's why I do this. Um, but, uh, I guess it's part of the, like I said before, part of the aging aspect is I look back and kind of, I'd like to get a lesson from everything I do, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's doing this type of thing, I'll go back and I'll, I'll analyze what I did and learn something from this. I'll learn something from, you know, feeding my kids tonight, but I would like to kind of pick apart each person I have on and, like I like to gain something from having you on, but looking back, you have all these experiences. You have the Olympics, you do all this testing. You're a husband, you're a father to an almost teenage girl, which is a whole other realm. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I just say that because my daughter is like, my son is the nicest little boy. And then she is just like, just a bull in a China shop. (laughs) So I'm anxious to see how that all turns out. But you know, if you look back um, whether it's on or off the bike and all the things that you've done, the training, the, the, the work, um, what are, you know, three different, three lessons that you've learned from the bike? 
Okay, well, let's see. I'll may, hopefully, I can come up with at least one. Yeah, just come up with on you get, What's your um, one? Well, yeah. I, would, I, I think I've had a very a fortunate career and opportunity to understand sportsmanship and what that you know can add to your quality of life and experience when two people line up you know with a agreed on set of rules and then you know just dig the hell out of each other and you know in that way you know sports and racing is your your worst your best competition is is a gift because they're going to get you to do something that you can't do on your own and so in that way you know i i look at my competition that way now that they're a blessing to help me dig something out that i wasn't going to get at myself um and so that i think that was kind of a long process of getting to what i think i have a healthy relationship with competition now um yeah, and I so I'm I'm kind of learning that with with negative things, right? Because it's easy to be inundated with negative things. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah. So what if it does? That's how you learn things, right? Right. So it's true. You, you know, I always learned more from the races that went sour than the races that went great. You know. Um you know, obviously having a great race has a, is a special feeling, but along the topic that you're talking about, you don't learn as much if you ride away from everybody and there's no challenge in your day. Right. You learn a lot when somebody finds your weakness and tries to exploit it. And then, you know, something goes wrong with your bike and you have to overcome that or whatever it is. Yeah. You learn a lot more when things don't go perfectly. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, here's another one then lesson that you've uh, taken that's applied or helped you um, not deal with raising a child, but I guess deal with raising a child. Um, Cause it's a whole different experience. Is there any, was there any like, okay, I, I've done all this stuff and I've learned these different things. And now I, I have a one-year-old daughter in my hands. What do I do? Is there anything that, or is that like a whole different, uh, how have you, have you, I would, any part of your comp- competitive nature that's like helped out with that? Or is that just a whole other world? Uh, for you. Well, I think it's a whole other world and <laughs> probably I would say the wisdom flowed more in the other direction that becoming a, uh-huh. a parent, becoming a father had more positive aspects, um, of enlightenment on the other aspects of my life and racing than the other way. I guess, you know, we t- we're talking about overcoming obstacles and when the pressure's on racing, you do kind of learn how to not freak out when the chips are down and you know, that probably didn't, didn't hurt because there's a lot of opportunities to freak out when you find yourself being a brand new parent, there's a new thing around the corner every day. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's just constantly just, you think you're doing so good for like half a day and then you're just brought down into reality. (laughs) I mean, I guess I guess I ask that because I know I have uh, a lot of listeners who are dads. They have a lot of younger, and then I get a lot, you know, people that are gonna be dads uh, at some point. So I, I did this being dad show, um, and we're actually I'm gonna have a co-host. We're gonna keep it going with a co-host, but um, 
And the comments always came from those three different groups, you know, and I, for the people who are going to be dads, it's like, they didn't even know what to like have anything to draw from. Right. They didn't know you can't take anything from work. I mean, there's no lesson to be learned from work that you can apply to a kid. Right. So that's why I'm curious from an athlete perspective, put in all that time, pushing yourself in one way, if it, if it really had any effect, you know, so it's interesting to hear that because as I'm starting to hit that point with my younger kids is like, they're starting to teach me things that, uh, I didn't realize. So it's interesting. For sure. Yeah. I think it made, you know, at a point where I'd done a lot and seen a lot of the world, it really made life super interesting all over again. Yeah. It's weird how it does that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you have? uh, We're going to wrap this up, but I want to see what you have going on soon. We we had emailed before and you said basically February you were gone all month. Yeah. What are your plans coming up for the summer? Anything, anything cool or? Well, we'll, we'll be, you know, I'll be together with my core development group at, at Trek at a few testing camps and we're still tacking down those dates and then managing different field tests with the group of people that I have around me here that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I hopefully don't have another month with as many travel <laughs> days as February. And it was just a combination of some hot bike races that I really wanted to get to and squeezing in um, some field testing with my development group at Trek. So, um, you know, I started out at the Fat Bike Worlds in Crested Butte, and then I drove the next day to Arizona and met my testing group there, and we tested bikes on dirt for 10 days. And then I came back to Durango and raced in Durango. Um, And then I went to Marquette, Michigan for some fat bike development testing and raced out there. I did that polar roll race that, that we talked about earlier and then came back to Colorado and then went to Utah to do the fat bike nationals in Ogden. So that was, I think out of, I think that was 22 days out of February that I was gone. So I'm enjoying being here in the morning and the evening every day. Right. It's, it's nice to be home. Yeah. <laughs> what can, before we get that, you mentioned Marquette before we end this, what do you think of the whole, not even the race? I, I didn't even check. I looked at the results and I thought you raced it, but I, I didn't realize that you, I thought you didn't, but then you just I did it. race. I ended up fourth. Okay. And, uh, there was a group of f- four or five of us at the end. And, uh, the young guys got the jump on me in the sprint. I wasn't, really familiar exactly where we were finishing but i think that late in the race they had the advantage i tried to i tried to string it out earlier and got a little bit of space but the last two miles along lake superior was a strong headwind and it all came back together um but we're you know that's kind of a pretty unique place as far as groom purpose groom trails for riding on and so that's a special experience it's just they get Um, so much snow that it's an issue yeah, yeah. Especially well, and when it's really warm, like it was for the race, they kind of got screwed on that one. But yeah, so it was. I think it was fifteen or twenty minutes slower than the previous year. Right. What because do you, of the off conditions? Yeah, you shouldn't have mentioned this because I have a, I have these additional questions. But um, <laughs> so, just to give you know, because I know listeners, the first question is like, what do you run for that? So in that situation, because I do have a lot of Midwest people, what were you as far as? 
if it wasn't like some prototype tire that you can't mention, but what were you running in terms of just, just tire width pressure? Yeah, it was, it was a prototype okay, tire. So we won't mention that, but, but we're getting ready to start talking about it. And it's a full size 27, five tire. So okay. 27, five by true 4.5. Okay. okay. And really the conditions there that day were similar to the race conditions that I've regularly found in Colorado because it is usually warmer and softer snow and it's not compacted. So, you know, I think a lot of races in the Midwest, like a four inch tire at six or seven or eight pounds is the best setup. Well, this was, these were conditions where the weight penalty didn't matter. The biggest tire you could get at the lowest pressure was the best setup. So within that group of five guys, there was two, two of us, two Trek guys with that 27 by 4.5 tire, which is the biggest 27, five fat bike tire that exists now. And there were other guys on, um, other five inch category tires. So 4.7 buds and, um, those Dillinger fives are probably Dillinger fives. And one person was on studded Dillinger fives, which put a dynamic in the middle of the race. Cause we had a mile stretch in the middle on this glare ice road. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty interesting. It was interesting. That, uh, what do you think of Marquette area? Pretty cool, huh? Oh, we had a great time there. And I think just the way, you know, they've embraced, you know, active lifestyle and outdoor recreation and particularly fat bike winter infrastructure as a way to kind of reclaim economies that yeah. were crashed after the, you know, the, the mining crash is super cool. It's a, it's a vibrant place. I'm I like cross country skiing in the winter too. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. All right. Is there anything you, we didn't hit that you kind of wanted to just keep us on our toes or watch out for besides this 4.5 27.5 tire <laughs> well that, that thing is pretty sweet i think uh you know i can't i couldn't say that i didn't win that race because i didn't have the fastest tires <laughs> so i think they work really well and that's part of that like diameter versus net volume right. equation right um no there's tons of there's innumerable other topics that we didn't cover, but maybe we should have it. We'll have, well, I'll have you on again. Another, another session. Absolutely. I could, I mean, <laughs> you're, like I said, you're great to have on. Uh, you've been on my buddy's show on athlete on fire and you know, just the, just the amount of experience and bike knowledge is, it's fascinating to me. Like I said, I, I'm curious about all this stuff. I'm curious to sit down and talk to somebody like you and pick apart whatever information I can get. So I, Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Well, it's fun. I enjoy sharing a passion. Yeah. And uh, listeners, if you have any questions um, for me or Travis, just forward them to me. I can forward them on to Travis. Um, it's Ben at mountainbikeradio.com. And uh, I think they'll do it. So thank you again, Travis. I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me on, Ben. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate the time. It's been a little bit longer uh, episode, but. I'm sure you listened to the end on this one. So have a good one. And until the next episode, that'll do it on Mountain Bike Radio.